And when I went to Japan, I, I realized that there were so many others who were kind of in that same boat. And, um, and I realized, I think, I think the reason that I, I found home in Japan was that you kind of make your own home in a sense. You know, um, when we, I was younger, we kind of had all these rituals surrounding the holidays. And we kind of had to reimagine what the holidays would look like when we moved to Japan. And what I realized was that what really matters are, are the people who surround you and, and the culture that you create, like, in wherever place that you are. So that, I think, is where I kind of found that sense of home in Japan. Welcome to the 54th episode of Tokyo Alumni Podcast. Today, our guest graduated from ASIJ in 2004. Having grown up as a first-generation Brazilian-American in a homogeneous Connecticut suburb, she had often felt stymied. When she moved to Japan, she found home. She learned how to become a scholar and a world citizen. Reflecting back on her education at ASIJ, she feels privileged to have learned from such passionate teachers. Teachers who impacted her greatly were Javier Fernandez and Shaken of Bio. Her experience as a third culture kid has guided many of her personal, professional, and academic decisions. It guided her to move to New York, one of the most heterogeneous metropolises in the United States. The jump at the opportunity to live in Brazil as a finance headhunter covering the Latin American region and to apply to her current doctoral program, Bilingual Track, to receive training in non-discriminatory assessment and therapeutic practices. She is presently a fourth-year doctoral school psychology student at St. John's University. Within this Doctor of Psychology program, responsibilities have been multifaceted coursework, teaching, clinical work, research, and leadership. The marriage of her doctoral training and multicultural background has reinforced her commitment to advocacy work and cultural sensitivity in the therapeutic context. She is passionate about mentoring high school and college-age students and welcomes contact about pursuing training in the field of mental health. Welcome to the podcast, Natasha. Thank you, Nick. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. And today we'll talk a bit about psychology, I guess, obviously, um, a bit okay. about you know, your background uh, being Connecticut versus Japan. And um, we spoke a little bit off air too about things like career trajectory, which is something um, I actually didn't share this with you offline, but I'm actually a high school psychology teacher. So it's something that comes up quite often. It's like, well, what, what jobs can I work in? And I go, oh, that's clinical psychology, but the others are it, it, as it, it's a bit vague and maybe you can shed some light on that. You know, what, what are the trajectories beyond just clinical psych? Certainly. Um, yeah. So first let's go back um, towards the earlier days um, before ASIJ, you were in the suburb of Connecticut yes. and first generation Brazilian American. So yeah. uh, can you tell us a bit about that time before ASIJ? Sure. Yeah. Um, I lived in Connecticut for the majority of my formative years. Um, I lived in a, a small town called Ridgefield. I think there are actually some ASIJers who come from Ridgefield or who relocated there. Um, and it's, it's pretty much this kind of like bucolic small town, um, pretty, you know, as I mentioned uh, in my description, homogeneous. Um, you know, being from Brazil was rather exotic. Um, uh, having lived in Japan, I realized that that really wasn't all that exotic. But um, I, uh, I, you know, it was a good upbringing. I, you know, um, was able to kind of uh, enjoy the public school system, which was very different than having gone to ASIJ. 
it was interesting when, when my parents announced to us that we were moving to Japan, um, I think they were bracing themselves for a pretty um, strong emotional response on our part. And I actually, I was in eighth grade at the time and I, I actually felt really relieved um, because I remember seeing high schoolers, uh, you know, kind of hanging out in the parking lot of like, you know, the gas station and kind of just hanging out on the weekends. And I don't know, as an eighth grader, I kind of just thought that seemed a little boring. Um, and I felt like there was more to the world to see. So when I came to Japan, I, uh, I was just so enraptured by all of the incredible people that I was able to meet, um, you know, throughout my time. And also the openness of, of the community, um, you know, living in this small town in Connecticut, um, you know, the population was fairly static. It wasn't altogether common to have a new influx of students or having people move. So um, just being part of this transient and dynamic community in Japan was really um, special for me. And it's interesting is how you've lived in Connecticut a longer time, but you sort of felt like you found home in Tokyo. Uh, so can you sort yeah. of elaborate a bit more in regards to, you know, what you said there in your bio? Certainly, yeah. Um, I think that what I was yearning for was to be part of a society that was more open-minded. And, um, you know, I, I remember uh, when I was, I don't know, I want to say in like sixth grade or seventh grade, we did this like genealogy assignment where we had to kind of trace our ancestry. Um, and my family originated from Spain, Portugal, and Ukraine. Um, and for whatever reason, that was like abnormal. Um, most of the people in my town were Irish or um, or, or Italian, um, maybe German or you know English. But um, just being this kind of I don't know different person and and recognizing that I what I actually wasn't altogether um, so different from so many people that I know outside of that small community. Um, I think just caused me to really want to kind of explore the rest of the world and see what else there was to be done outside of, you know, this small little rural town. And when I got to Japan, I just, you know, I, you know, we have people from the embassy from like a military background who just had such rich experiences outside of, um, you know, the American experience um, that I really, you know, I, I already came into to Japan kind of feeling like I was sort of half Brazilian, half American, and not really being altogether accepted in either community, I suppose. And when I went to Japan, I, I realized that there were so many others who were kind of in that same boat. And, um, and I realized, I think, I think the reason that I, I found home in Japan was that you kind of make your own home in a sense. You know, um, when we, I was younger, we kind of had all these rituals surrounding the holidays and we kind of had to reimagine what the holidays would look like when we moved to Japan. And what I realized was that what really matters are, are the people who surround you and, and the culture that you create like in wherever place that you are. So that I think is where I kind of found that sense of home in Japan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, it's really intriguing to hear, you know, people's various stories in regards to where they're from and where they go. Um, it hasn't aired yet, but I just interviewed uh, Ben Carr, probably would have been your freshman. Um, and yeah, he yeah. lived in like five, six countries and now he's in Canada. 
So it's it's very interesting to see, you know, as you said, sort of this concept of home is just so transient, like uh, especially within our community, uh, which is really cool. It is cool. I mean, obviously this podcast isn't about myself. I try not to talk about myself, but just for, for me, like I've lived in Korea now eight years and the kids always are surprised when I tell them I've lived in the States for four. So I've lived in for Korea twice the time I've lived in the States now. So someone would have told me that, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I would have thought they're crazy. You never know. (laughs) Yeah, you really don't. And I think, um, I don't know, for me, just sort of tying it back to the present day, um, you know, I know that a lot of people have experienced a sense of loss during the pandemic, um, having some of these, um, their expectations violated and their routines altered and their sense of normalcy changed. And I found, yes, I did experience some of those things, but um, I actually found that I was rather adaptable to those changes. I think probably because normal has always been in quotes to me ever since having lived in Japan, because I know that nothing is really permanent and that, you know, our lives sort of have different like epochs and those can either be long or short. Um, So I think, you know, for me, at least it's provided some comfort and, and adaptability in the face of, you know, our changing world. That's a really great point. I was actually something I was just thinking about the other day, how, I mean, obviously just you and I can't speak on behalf of all international kids, but um, one thing that I didn't realize until this you know, pandemic, especially this Christmas, is just how much, you know, for people who are sort of rooted in certain areas, like having that Thanksgiving dinner, having that Christmas day with their family, extended family, has just been something they've been doing for 25 years, you know, 45 years. Yeah. So for them, it's like, take that away. It's just like, uh, it's just like this, you know. Devastating, this, yeah. yeah this <laughs> huge change. Whereas, yeah, maybe us from the international community, as I said, we, we're already kind of used to that, whether it's being told, you know, May of your, you know, eighth grade year or whatever, 10th grade year, being told you're going to move schools, you know, or your best friend for five years is going to suddenly, loot, you know, move 10 hours away on plane. You know, it's just like, I guess in that sense, it, it does prepare us uh, for these changes. I want to sort of pivot a little bit towards psychology. Why, and we're going to start very broad here. Why psychology? I know a lot of people in international schools tend to go to finance, you know, law, law accounting. Not too many people I know have gone at this site. So why did you land in the field of psychology? Sure. I'm happy to talk about it. Um... Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting you mentioned that because I think I went to an alumni event not too long ago, maybe a few years ago. And and I recall, um, you know, noticing that most of the people were kind of in, you know, that kind of like law, like finance arena um, or, you know, business. Um, So, yeah, I would say that, you know, within the ASIJ alumni community, being in psychology probably is, um, you know, somewhat of an outlier. And actually, my trajectory toward psychology, um, I would say, was nonlinear in the sense that, you know, when I graduated undergrad, I I didn't have any intention of going to graduate school or or pursuing psychology any further. Um, When I was in undergrad, um, just to circle back and knowing that you, you know, work with a lot of high school students, um, I went into my college years essentially as a pre-med student and then ended up pivoting um, to human development, you know, focusing more on the development of the human species, if you will. But, um, you know, when I graduated college, I, I think I was pretty burnt out. 
and uh, I really just wanted to kind of opt for for more of a career. And um, at that juncture, I ended up actually working at Memorial Sloan Kettering, a cancer center, where I was kind of uh, in this entry-level position that was sort of veering toward the area of hospital administration. Um, and I think that, you know, you'll <laughs> next you'll hear that I kind of became a headhunter um, in the area of finance, so sort of ancillary to, you know, all those individuals who you know, work at, in the finance industry. And I think that a lot of that was reflective of the fact that I, I didn't quite know what I wanted. When I was in uh, college, I did a number of, in, you know, internships. Um, one of them was in marketing. Another of them was in um, PR. I also did another one in human resources. So it was really like every, every thought that I had of, oh, should I try this? Should I try that? I really did actually test it out. And I kept coming back to this feeling of none of these really satisfy me and none of them really feel like they click with, you know, who I, I feel I am. <laughs> and so, you know, fast forward to, you know, having worked as a headhunter for about like two and a half, three years, you know, although that was an exciting career move, um, you know, very fast paced, I kind of found that, you know, helping people in that capacity, um, you know, did have kind of like salesy undertones that didn't really kind of agree with my personality or, or worldview per se. And so then I kind of had to jog my brain and think, you know, what, what is it that I really want to do? And again, uh, <laughs> don't want to make it seem as though I, I've always had everything figured out because at that point I actually considered a few other options too. I considered you know, becoming a chocolate maker. <laughs> um, I had actually taken some courses in interior design prior, so I considered potentially making a move into interior design. But ultimately, what I realized was that, was that those were tasks that kind of involved like creating a product, if you will. And actually, what I, what I, when I really kind of dug down, I realized that I, the, the parts that I most enjoyed about my jobs were that that connection with humans. And I'd always gravitated toward working with children when I was pre-med. I, I thought that I would become a pediatrician, you know, even though that dream was, you know, now <laughs> in the past, I realized that I, I really wanted to kind of uh, make a move in that direction. So I actually went back uh, and got a master's degree. I went to NYU. I, I got a degree in general psychology, both, both to kind of bolster my, um, you know, academic profile and, you know, kind of get all of the prerequisites under my belt, but also to gain more applied experience and to make a decision about whether I wanted to focus more on research or more on the practice of psychology. Um, and in so doing, I, you know, was able to intern uh, in a lab at Mount Sinai in the city. I was working with ticks and Tourette and, and also with uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, or OCD. And in that capacity, I was able to really kind of find my niche, which was you know, actually working with like therapy and, and working with kids. Um, so having those kind of applied experiences was really, um, I think, what kind of did it for me, because I what you know, I realized that it was kind of a long path, it was either going back and getting another master's in social work or mental health counseling, or kind of going the whole nine yards and getting a doctorate, um, whether it was a PhD, um, which is more uh, research oriented, or a PsyD, which is more practice oriented. And so in, in doing that, I, I realized that I, I really did have a passion for it, and that I, I kind of wanted to move forward. But it was, you know, I think that I proceeded with caution, and getting that master's was kind of, I think, a, a representation of that. 
yeah. So that's kind of how I got into the field of psychology, really kind of ruling out a lot of other, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of other career options and realizing, um, you know, after having really kind of given it a fair shot and, you know, been in the lab and, and, you know, worked with kids and, and, you know, been part of a camp and, and like a, a group that did therapy, you know, really feeling that kind of intangible sense of, of like fulfillment. That was kind of what did it for me. You've mentioned, you know, working with kids as, as a passion. When you say kids, what I'm curious is, I think that on your website, you mentioned, you know, about working with college age kids, high school age kids. Um, in the field of psychology, one thing that interests me quite a bit is when it comes to, you know, things like research data, you know, you mentioned ticks, uh, OCD disorder, et cetera. Um, does that research become tricky when it's dealing with minors? Yes and no. Uh, so typically, you know, if you're working with people who are under the age of 18, you do have to get consent from the parent, but then you also have the added step of getting assent from the child. So although they can't necessarily provide consent for themselves, um, you do typically, you know, if you're getting a project, uh, you know, through to actual like fruition, you have to get it approved by an institutional review board to make sure, especially if you're working with human subjects, there are a lot of hoops that you have to jump to, through to make sure that you're, you know, proceeding ethically and that you're not going to do harm by, you know, um, carrying out your study. And so through that process, you also have to develop assent forms um, to speak with children. Um, and, and make sure that they understand what they're getting into. And what, what do you find most rewarding about working with young people? You know, I actually, I find that children's resiliency is, is what most draws me to them. And I've also worked with adults and I, act, I enjoy it. You know, I think um, the, the conversation is quite different. I think there are appealing aspects to both. But in working with children, what I notice is that you have the opportunity to really intervene at a younger and earlier stage many of us in our adulthood, we have these habitual patterns of acting and thinking and reacting to things that can be more challenging to, to kind of combat. And as a child, you, your, your brain um, still has so much potential to, to change and, and kind of rewire uh, before you've actually kind of gone to the stage where you're so entrenched in those patterns. So I think that that's really what appeals to me. Kind of one of my passions is it's just generally changing our society through education. And I view therapy as a means of doing that because a, a good part of therapy is actually educating people about whatever condition it is that they have and the way that they're reacting or responding and how that, that, that might be impacting them. I think why I'm most drawn to children and adolescents. It's interesting when you talk about education, you know, I think society is constantly evolving, constantly changing. And even you know, we've, it's been about 20 years since we were in high school. It seems like a lot of norms are constantly shifting. And I'm just thinking off the top of my head, even something as simple as sort of, you know, the perception of homosexuals. Like, um, yeah. we're young, but I, I can remember even when I was in high school, or, you know, we were in high school at the same time, slurs against homosexuals were like pretty normal. And it was just mm -hmm. like, it was just one of those things where I, I think as a society, and we were at a very liberal school, but yeah. we were just, it still wasn't quite there yet, you know, and I think things are still evolving. So would yeah. you, what would you say today is sort of that, what is like the next big step? Because we've seen, when I think of like gay rights and that type of uh, area of human rights, I see just massive colossal shifts, even within the 10 years I've been teaching. So what is sort of the next thing in regards to education uh, 
where we need to sort of see a big shift in dynamics that, you know, is right now normal, but maybe shouldn't be? Well, I think I have somewhat of a biased lens on this, but I actually think that the integration of and, and normalization of like mental health is actually really important. You know, uh, last year I, I did an externship or internship. Uh, we kind of have this like weird nomenclature in, in psychology. It's called an externship uh, when you're in graduate school um, where I was working in this school. And what I noticed is that typically like the students who have the most difficulty and who potentially are gifted often get the most allocation of resources. And those individuals who kind of fall into that like middle category of um, you know, potentially you still passing, but maybe struggling or, you know, having some, you know, mental health concerns, but that don't rise to the level of, you know, true like risk or, or disruption to, you know, the school environment, you know, just because you're able to function doesn't necessarily mean that you're well. <laughs> um, and so I think that shifting our perspective away from, you know, ameliorating symptoms and actually promoting wellness and fulfillment, I think that that's a major shift. Um, and just having more open conversation about the fact that, you know, so many mental health struggles are normal and, and it's okay to have that. And, and truly, it's difficult to face those on your own. So reaching out for help is, is not a sign of weakness, but rather uh, a way, a tool in, in trying to help yourself. So I think that in my view, again, <laughs> mentioning that I'm a little biased, um, I think that that's a direction where where we need to kind of move as a society. A great point. Um, have you seen the show uh, 13 Reasons Why? Yes, I have. Uh, only the first season, I believe. Quite controversial, but I mean, from your perspective, do you think that was sort of a positive towards, you know, young people because it was highlighting, you know, those type of issues or was it a glorification of, of suicide? You know, I think, it, I think it was a shift in the sense that, you know, really centralizing mental health struggles as like the main focus of the of the um, of the show what concerned me about that was that um, the main character kind of blamed others for her struggles and while um, I think as a society we do need to improve um, and you know help individuals not you know move in the direction of bullying and shaming others etc um, at the end of the day, I think one of the things that I've learned in, in studying how to become a therapist is that we are each responsible for ourselves. And of course, you know, this is, there's a slight asterisk there, which is, you know, that parents obviously, you know, have responsibility for their children as well, but no one can necessarily make you feel a certain way. We each, you know, for example, if I were to say something rude to you or, you know, to various others, each person would have a different perspective and lens on that. And so I think that what actually could have been interesting in that show would have been to highlight the fact that we each have our own perspective and that we each internalize those external messages in different ways. And so, you know, the, the character in that show internalized it in, in such a way that, you know, it led her to act out and, and commit suicide. But at the end of the day, um, her blaming others, I think, was somewhat counterproductive to, to this notion of us being responsible for ourselves. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're alone in the world, but rather that we can understand that we can actually shift the way that we perceive how others, you know, interact with us. You're a uh, trilingual, right? Portuguese, Spanish, yeah. <laughs> English. I imagine very, very basic Japanese, maybe like a, at least a few hundred words. 
that'd be yeah <laughs> i would say the japanese has definitely rusted over the years my brother has done a better job of keeping up with it he was also slightly younger when we were in japan and so he uh he actually ended up taking japanese for longer than i did i kind of ended up stopping taking japanese toward the end of high school in favor of you know, other AP classes and such. I, I view myself more of like as a bilingual who speaks Spanish, given that it's not my native tongue. But I think that's more of like a semantic kind of difference. <laughs> but the fact is that I can speak all three. And you've been able to sort of leverage that background in regards to, you know, your studies being both, you know, English and Spanish. In what other ways has sort of being multilingual aided you in regards to, you know, your doctoral or just work out, outside of site externships and uh... so actually uh, I think that my just general affinity for languages and you know natural you know background in having a few different languages under my belt has led me to seek out you know placements and you know training opportunities that sort of enhance that so for example in that school that I mentioned I was in a town called Mineola that has a large uh, Portuguese population. So I specifically sought that out because, you know, having those kind of Portuguese speaking enclaves is pretty rare. Um, although there are, you know, Portuguese speakers in New York, um, you know, there, I would say that there's not like such natural, like small communities like that, unless you're talking about Queens or something like that. But um, that was, I thought I found was a really interesting experience. And, you know, when I'm looking toward next year where I'm, looking for other opportunities. I'm also looking for uh, placements that have, you know, the opportunity to practice doing therapy in Spanish. So I think that that's kind of tinted my lens in that way. And I find also that when I look at the, you know, bilingual coursework that I have, um, where really the orientation is to, to backtrack for one quick second, um, there is sort of like an overlapping of individuals with a diagnosis of a learning disability within individuals who are bilingual. So if they're learning English, um, oftentimes their difficulties with material or you know other tasks is actually attributed to a learning disability as opposed to the fact that they haven't been or culture of their environment. And so one of the things that I've learned in my program is to kind of ensure that whatever deficits might be arising or weaknesses are in fact due to cognitive difficulty as opposed to just the fact that the person hasn't been exposed to things. My background, you know, with my family, et cetera, has led me to, to really understand that experience that a lot of students have. Um, and I think that I've become more empathic and that's only been supplemented by the coursework that I've had. When you mentioned sort of the overdiagnosis, are there specific LDs you could think of that because uh, I, I know at least within the last 10, 20 years, big one has been ADHD, but I'm assuming that's not uh, the ones you're talking about. Are you, ta are you talking about more specific? Yeah, so when we talk about a learning disability, typically it's in a specific area. So it could be reading, writing, or math. Um, mm -hmm. And so often there's an overrepresentation in the area of reading and writing, although in math as well as uh, language, you know, can impact the person's ability to understand like word problems or um, encode, you know, some abstract concepts. So um, when we talk about learning disabilities, actually the, the proper term for it is a specific learning disability in either the area of writing, reading, or math. And, and individuals can actually have disabilities in all of those areas, but typically uh, they'll have like one or two. 
So psychology is an interesting topic. And obviously I'm very biased. I, uh, I teach psychology, albeit just, I teach elective, you know, so easygoing uh, high school psychology. And a question I often get from students is, you know, what, you know, I find psychology interesting, but what kind of jobs exist apart from, you know, clinical psychology? So what type of career trajectories have you seen, you know, with your peers, colleagues, and the various places you've worked at? And where do you see the trajectories going if there are any changes in regards to the field of psychology? You know, psychology is, uh, I, I would divide it into two categories. One would be um, the more practice-oriented areas versus areas that are either more research-focused or more uh, business-focused. So, you know, it's understandable that your students would kind of have this kind of question mark about psychology because I think it is such a broad field. <laughs> so, um, for example, you know, work in experimental psychology where you really essentially focus on, you know, doing experiments. Often those individuals are academics. They might focus on social psychology, which is the study of social relations and, and the way that we interpret the world and, and sort of proceed. There's also consumer psychology and industrial organizational psychology. Those individuals typically uh, need a master's degree uh, or a doctorate, and they would work in a company and help that company sort of uh, rejigger their <laughs> organizational structure to actually facilitate you know, efficiency and, you know, more conducive work environment, specifically surrounding the company's, you know, work goals. So that, those are kind of, uh, I would say, like two um, silos of, of psychology that I've seen. Um, there's also forensic psychology, which is really cool. Um, the study of individuals who, um, you know, have committed crimes or who are involved in the justice system. So that's, you know, another avenue. I don't have as much experience with that, but um, it's, I find it fascinating and I have taken a few courses on it. And then there's kind of, like I mentioned, the, the practice oriented side. So you have clinical psychology, counseling psychology, and school psychology. I would say that there's somewhat of an overlap between those in the sense that each of those, uh, you know, if you go on to do a doctoral degree, you can either focus more on the research side or more on like the, the practice oriented side. If we're talking about the practice of each of those where you're interacting with individuals and providing therapy um, or, you know, providing other services, you know, clinical psychologists tend to be based in, uh, you know, practices in hospital settings or other institutions. And they uh, tend to focus on the full spectrum of abnormal psychology or, or psychopathology or, or different mental health disorders. You know, if you look, if you, if you meet like 10 different people who are clinical psychologists, they'll each have like different focuses. Like one person might focus on anxiety, another person, and you know, as an outpatient um, therapist, another might actually be a therapist in an inpatient unit working with individuals who have schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. So really it can kind of run the gamut, but the focus tends to be very, what they call like clinical. Um, in terms of counseling psychology, you do get that kind of clinical exposure, but there's often also a focus on, you know, actually doing some sort of like vocational assessment. Typically, you're not focusing as much on really severe kind of mental illness. And often, you know, counseling psychologists will work in counseling centers in, you know, universities, um, those kind of environments. But, you know, there is some latitude, you know, you're not necessarily bound to any one setting 
Um, if you're a licensed psychologist, which is what you are, if you're in either school counseling or clinical psychology, you have the ability to do things. Although, you know, there might be times when, you know, a job posting says, you know, specifically looking for a clinical psychologist. Um, and then when it comes to school psychology, the focus of that is really looking at school age children. So children, adolescents, and the primary focus is really kind of how to best help children who are in school and how to help them uh, attain their learning goals, learning and socio-emotional goals. Although, you know, school psychologists are not just bound to like those brick and mortar school settings. School psychologists might work in consultation outside of a school. They might work in a private practice. Um, you know, there are a variety of functions that individuals can have. So I think all that leads me to, to kind of say that psychology and even if we're looking at a master's in social work or a master's in mental health counseling, there are a lot of different degrees and specializations. And at the end of the day, I think that finding which one appeals to you most is important, but never necessarily letting that limit you. Um, I think, you know, kind of touching on things that I think need to change. Um, there, there can be some rigidity, I think, in, oh, you know, clinical psychologists can only do this or school psychologists can only do this. And I think at the end of the day, um, you know, each specialization has its areas of strength, um, but that doesn't necessarily preclude you from kind of veering into other arenas. So I think that that's my sort of take on that. <laughs> so I think, you know, you've mentioned a variety of paths one could take. But um, I think another concern, especially I think high schoolers have, as well as to a certain degree undergraduates, you know, I think a lot of schools, they don't have to choose their major until junior year, is are there jobs you can get with a, with a bachelor's? Because it seems like a lot of the positions you have mentioned have been sort of, you know, predicated on someone at least getting a master's, if not most of the time a doctoral. Uh, so are there any jobs where people can just get a, a bachelor's in psychology and, and work straight out of college? That's a good question. And I think that I don't, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. <laughs> I don't think so. I think that so, you know, there's certain undergraduate careers. So for example, if you get a bachelor's in engineering, for example, I think that there are direct pathways into jobs. However, in psychology, sort of touching on what I was describing, which is that you have to be a little creative and open minded. Um, I don't think that there are necessarily any sort of careers, if you will, that are structured around a bachelor's in psychology. So mm. although with a bachelor's in psychology, you can, you know, work in a private practice, you can work in a lab, there are a number of things you can do, but there tends to be somewhat of a ceiling in terms of your progression. And often, you know, if people want to continue in the field of psychology, they do end up veering toward a graduate degree. With that said, psychology, as I mentioned, is a, is a fairly malleable um, and, and open field. And so the skills that you learn in psychology can often be applied in other areas. So for example, when I worked as a headhunter, there were a few people who had studied psychology as undergrads who were doing that. There are people who, you know, studied psychology and, you know, work in, in human resources or, or do a variety of jobs. But if you're looking for a specific trajectory, I don't think I can necessarily offer one. I mean, that's only my perspective, um, yeah. but but I don't think that there's sort of this like natural sort of funnel into any one field. 
Mm. So it's very much like one has to sort of create their own path if they're going to yeah, really exactly. push forward with, with a psych degree. It's yeah. Crazy. And I think, it, you know, it can also vary too on the coursework that you take as an undergrad and the kinds of internships that you get. Um, you know, if you were doing internships that were more clinically oriented, um, you know, I've definitely seen people, you know, help with more like clinical type projects and, and that kind of thing. You know, if you were focusing more on like forensic psychology or more on industrial organizational psychology, there are potentially avenues that you could pursue. But again, it would it would be uh, up to you to kind of, I think, network and, and talk to people and find out what opportunities, you know, most aligned. Well, um, towards the end of the podcast, I like to ask the guest what is coming up in their lives the next few years, next few decades. So you're, you're in the uh, middle of your dissertation or you're just saying off there, you're in the early stages. So yeah, I know a bit about that, but uh, yeah. So what else is going on in your life right now as well? as So, you know, as I mentioned, uh, you know, I got my dissertation, um, which is somewhat of a storm cloud, <laughs> like hanging up over above me. Um, although I, you know, I enjoyed the research. Um, I have one more year of training, if you will. Um, and so what I'm, I'm going to be working in a school district part time, and then also I'm hoping to be in an inpatient unit to kind of amplify my exposure. Right now, I'm actually working in a private practice that um, does cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavior therapy. So working with a lot of individuals who, ha who have what we call emotion dysregulation, that means is a lot of difficulty regulating your emotion states. Um, and, and part of that is also working with individuals who have borderline personality disorder, um, which is, I think, somewhat of a disorder to encounter in a lot of private practices. So sort of capitalizing on the experience that I've gotten in working with dialectical behavior therapy, I'm going to be working in this school district that actually offers dialectical behavior therapy to students, which is a rarity. Um, and, you know, in my view, you know, kind of the future <laughs> of schools. Um, and then uh, we'll also ho hopefully be placed in an inpatient unit that also offers DBT to those individuals. And then sort of in the longer term, um, once I have my degree, I, I will. So just, you know, to your students and, and others who are interested in psychology, um, after next year, I'll be pursuing what we call an internship, and that's a full-time position that's required for you to actually become licensed. So once mm. I've completed that, it's somewhat like a residency, if you will, um, if we okay. had to equate it to the medical field. Um, so once I've completed that, then I actually have to go and do a postdoctoral fellowship for a year, um, yeah. again, to get uh, supervised hours. And then beyond that, um, once I actually am kind of on my own, um, I, I really see myself kind of working in a private practice, a large scale practice, um, mainly focusing on cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavior therapy, which are. So it, it seems like on one hand, the psychology route is very long, right? Yes. Say very, very similar <laughs> to a doctor's route. Um, yeah. Like doctors, I mean, once you're at the end of that road, which is only about two years from now, I guess you'll be done, right? With your post. Yes. Yep then it's just kind of like pretty much go into whatever intrigues you through, you know. Yeah, I mean, I see myself like writing a book, you know, uh, I, you know, as I mentioned to you, education is something that's really important to me. So even, you know, potentially having more of a public presence and, you know, spreading awareness about different things. Um, so I do, you know, I love it as a field. I also, you know, caution people to really, 
you know, explore, you know, what the requirements are before kind of delving in psychology. I don't think it's something to, you know, kind of just take lightly, but I think it's a very rewarding field um, if, if it truly clicks for you. So yeah, bright features for individuals, you know, in your class who might want to move forward. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll definitely tell them that there, there's options of many and it's definitely yeah. intriguing. Your, your story and I look forward to maybe that, that book way down the line. So yeah, thank you for joining us today for our 54th. I keep forgetting the numbers. I think it's 54th. I'm, I'm actually wearing this happy holiday shirt. I saw it should that. Be, yeah. <laughs> it's a Rick and Morty over there, Rick and Morty. So Very cool. <laughs> yeah, I was noticing that. <laughs> um, well, thanks, Nick. I'm, I'm so glad to be on your podcast. And I think it's, you know, I've listened to some of your other episodes and I think it's such a cool idea. And I think I read somewhere that you kind of like started with this project um, because a lot of your students kind of had these questions about, you know, what is it like beyond high school? Um, I could, maybe I'm misremembering that, but I think that might've been the impetus behind it. Um, so I think that that's really amazing. Testing yeah, to your commitment to working with those students. Yeah, it's definitely one of the reasons. Um, uh, a few others, but yeah, well, I appreciate it. I appreciate that you actually saw a few. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah. So thanks a lot for having me on. It was a nice conversation. <laughs>